Hello, my name is Katrina. I'm Kendra. And I'm Azreen. And welcome to the Murderous Trio. Hello. Hello. Alright, so, to go over what we went over and what we're going to go over and what has been gone over and what will be gone over. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, let's go over. Uh, but before we go over... We're going uh, over? Uh, <laughs> we're like, going over time. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> Apologies for, yeah, again, being like not posting this past week because I got my second COVID shot and I thought, oh, I'll be fine. Because my first one, I was just really tired, but um, no. 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 And so we were supposed to record last night. I'm just like, I'm actually really tired. So how about we record in the morning? But this morning, I was dying. Like, I woke up after midnight, and, like, I had a fever, chills, everything, so I'm just like, ugh. Second one's a doozy. Yeah. You feel fine better now, though, right? I'm feeling a lot better now, yeah. You look it. Yeah. Thank you. So, within the 24 hours. You got that glow. Thank you. That post-sickness glow. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, you're feeling healthy, but now for the first time in a long time, you can actually appreciate it, and you're like, oh, shit, this is what it's like to not be in pain. (laughs) Yeah. Especially since... You don't know this feeling, I'm reading, but, like, it's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Especially because I haven't been, like, super sick, and it's like, yeah, I've had, like cold and like stomach pains here and there but not like full on sick in so long mm-hmm. and this was the first time in forever mm-hmm. for the first time in forever sorry okay <laughs> let's go into the past present and future of this podcast all right okay so last time we talked about how rebecca frost 2015 dissertation on <laughs> <laughs> yes yes let's recap what we learned there so, uh, this was her general thesis was that true crime functions as a restorative ritual after the community experiences a disruption, i.e., a crime. So this, she specifically traced it from execution sermons to trial reports to books, with changes along the way that we got saw were introducing doubt when we moved over to trials, yeah. as well as introducing motive, which were not a thing during the ex- execution sermons. Yeah. We also started to see introducing the victims, which were not a thing during execution sermons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now they're a thing. Now they're evidence. Yeah. And we also have shifts in authority. We went from a minister yeah. who like is the spiritual leader of the community and also, you know, had a very would have a personal relationship with the perpetrator post crime as they're like and would have special insights into them because they're guiding their spiritual journey. So they can, like, really speak from that position of authority, both mm. generally and specifically in the case of the crime. Yep. And then as we went to trial reports, we're going to reporters, basically. And their whole author- thing with authority comes from, like, like oh, I'm not here. I'm a, I'm a window. You can look through me <laughs> and you will see, like, objectively what's happening. Hey, like... Like, I don't exist, functionally. These are my credentials. (laughs) But then when we move to the books in the 1960s, then we get the authority comes from basically having an insider, right? Mm -hmm. Like someone who was either specifically interviewing the perpetrator, like Capote in Cold Blood. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, this kind of goes back to, like, the ministers in, in the execution sermons. Or someone who was, like, friends with the perpetrator, 
before, during, or after the crimes. Yeah. Thanks. But what remained consistent, we still got a pretty strong focus on the perpetrator. And we're really trying to push faith in the system. Maybe mm -hmm. not, like, really, but, you know, like, it's a restorative ritual. It's supposed to make you feel safe. Yeah. If in the status quo, in the world as you live in it. So, generally, to do that, you know, you want to be like, this is unusual, and it's going to be dealt with when it is, when it happens, and it's going to be dealt with well. Mm -hmm. Like, that's how you feel safe. Yeah. Mostly. So, now, this week, we're going to talk about how podcasts came into it, because, as I mentioned last time, Rebecca Frost's dissertation came out in 2015. This was a few months after Serial started airing. Oh, and I love Serial. Okay. Mm-hmm. I love cereal. Like, I also love cereal, but, like, more like the kind that you eat. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> but. And I also love the podcast, too. <laughs> and, and, like, as I was saying, like, I feel like cereal was, what's going on? Boomy is trying to get into the sink. Okay, I don't think there's anything dreadful in there. Maybe he's, he's probably trying to eat the flies. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, our fruit flies. He's going to knock something over. I oh, just no. know it. Oh, no. For sure. He's. He, I've seen bulls with more grace than him. <laughs> and just drunk elephants with more, uh, with more awareness of where they're stepping. <laughs> Boomy! <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, he just looked at us, but then was like, very clearly like, are you going to say something further? And then no one did. And he's just like, right. <laughs> Noted. But, so, as I noted last week, I was like, I feel like cereal had an influence. And you know what? Mm -hmm. I feel so validated right now. <laughs> because, like, I was going through, like, so many different... Because this week I didn't look at one, but many, like, academic, peer-reviewed <laughs> articles about podcasting and true crime and how these two have intersected and how they've influenced each other. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Serial is, in fact, academically speaking, an important podcast. Yes, 100%. Yes, it is. That's what started it all. Okay, go on. Quite literally, it is credited for starting the podcast boom. It is, to this day, the most downloaded podcast. It was the first podcast, or not the first, but I think it was, like, the fastest to reach 5 million downloads. Like, well, like it is. is quite effectively, actually, the start of it all. Mm -hmm. So... I am very, I feel very validated with, like, a lot of what I was saying, too, about, like, how saying, saying there's a dispersion of authority and more questioning of the yeah. status quo. So. Because now we have average folks like us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Questioning the motives of all the parties, you know, involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, one of the thing, one particular um, article that was very, shall we say, to the point of what I was actually researching was, um, when podcast met true crime. I'm by, um, Lon please forgive my pronunciation. Nobody's good at it. And I'm, and of this terrible bunch, I am the worst. There's, uh, Line Sestrup Clausen and Stein Austin Stuckers. I'm so sorry, folks. Like, like, Article writers, if you're listening to this, mea culpa. My bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, like, they went real far back with their history. They were just like, yeah, like, this has always been a thing. Like, Cain and Abel in the Bible. I feel like I've said that, too. 
But they're like, this is the first true crime. Cain is the first murderer. Abel is the first victim. God is the first homicide detective. And I, <laughs> and I that, was, that was my favorite bit of imagery, like, ever. Like, just, like, God, I like a little detective hat and a little pipe from, like, crouching around the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I mean, not the Garden of Eden. That's not the timeline. They're all out, kicked out by then. But, you know, maybe the garden, in the Garden of Eden, too. <laughs> this little detective hat. Okay. Continue from the last. Point. I was I was going to say something, but uh, that's not the point. Well, what I wanted to say is not exactly the point of our podcast. All right. Okay. Okay. Continue. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then they pretty quickly moved on to like the 1920s, 1930s, when true crime and magazines were a thing. Yes. And these were very much. In the pulp sphere of things. Mm-hmm. Things like they're very pulpy. They're very sensationalist. And like they did a lot more focus than uh, Frost did on just the role sensationalism plays in true crime. Mm-hmm. I mean like. Like what do you call that? Like interest in the macabre? What is that called? Morbid curiosity? Yeah. That's the phrase. <laughs> it's like where you get really just like interested in those train wrecks. And you're just like. God look at all the. Do you pieces. think it's because a part of us, why do you think that is? What, like, why are we morbidly interested in things? N- no, like interested in true crime, like with this, like this fascination with some of the worst tragedies in human history, you know? Well, that's kind of, that, that's like why I've been doing this two-parter, right? Yeah. It's like, what is the sociological function of true crime and like, you obviously have Frost being, like, it's a restorative ritual. It, like, mm-hmm. like we look at these, we feel disturbed th- that these happened. And so we need to, like, do something to restore our sense of normalcy. And, like, true crime is a way, functioning as a way to do that. A part of me also um, feels as, as if, though, like... During my, um, when I was speaking in the podcast, during my Mm -hmm. week a few weeks ago, remember how I was talking about, um, I think during my research, I I encountered an article that was saying that some sort of the fascination comes from this, like, not the darkness, but like maybe the, like the negativity or the negative energy, like the self-doubt and like the traumas that exist within us. I would like to add to that and say it's like um, kind of how a lot of women are interested or like are fascinated with not only true crime but with horror films as well as like many women are. Uh, I can definitely speak for myself when I say that Um, and I I forget which YouTube video I was watching but um, it's like there's a guy that said like he was asking one of his um, uh, female friends and saying, it's like, why are there so many women interested in horror films? And it's like, well, it's because we have so many fears and it's like in horror films, our fears are validated. And I think that's the same with true crime as well, that um, it's like, while we know, like... um, it's like for not just women, but for other uh, groups of people as well. It's like have 
something to like be worried about or like kind of scared about. And so, well, and so like, um, within true crime, it's like, it's val like our fears are validated because it's like we know what's out there and it's like I'm probably gonna cut this out because I realize I'm not making any sense based on the looks of both no. of your faces. So no, I think it made sense. Mm -hmm. Keep it in. Um, no, I think that makes sense. But like, like, uh, yeah, I agree. I think it sort of validates our experiences within our own trauma and our fears. But I think a part of me also wonders how much goes to like. Um, sometimes even recognizing that if we don't heal ourselves, if we don't heal our trauma or like the, like, um, the pain of like the burden of that trauma or that, you know, mm -hmm. um, can, can take part in like, um, how do I, can, it can kind of like it, these, uh, these people came from a place of pain yeah. and like that. So too may we go. That way, so too may we go. But I don't want to say that either, because I, I want. I just. I'm curious about that, because I've heard that during, um, and I read that during my research, and I don't know how much I personally agree with it. But folks were saying that um, some of the individuals who are serial killers or individuals who commit crime. Um, well, if we talk about crime itself, there's very different levels of, like, nuance in that, you know? There's crime that, for survival, you know? There's crime of protecting someone. Um, but then there's, you know, crime of, you know, other things like that. You see what I'm saying? There's, like, a motive behind that crime, and sometimes mm -hmm, but we not can connect with that motive. Okay. Um, but then I wonder if, if some people can also connect with this morbid fascination because they themselves can see it, like, do, do you play think, out. play um, out? I mean, I'm not sure that those are always the cases that we seem to find compelling, though. Because, I mean, what cases do we find compelling? It's like, I don't know what these people did, by the way, but, like, I think, like think of, like, big names, like, like Charles Manson and, like... True, I don't think I can ever find sympathy for them. I guess I'm thinking about, um... Because, I mean, like, this might be happening on the fringes, but is that what's driving the I th main pull of it? Is oh, like the main pull of true crime, I guess? Yeah. I think um, it's, like, with our morbid, like, fascination and curiosity is that I think a lot of people are a lot more focused on the bigger names, like, because I guess a lot of us can't really imagine something like this actually happening so it when it does yeah and when it does happen we're just like wait yeah. what yeah exactly yeah so I agree with you but I'm also I guess I'm not thinking okay so let me take a step back I'm not thinking I wasn't thinking of like that the big names of the serial killer I guess I was thinking when you're talking about um I I guess when we talk about criminals or white collar crime or like do we talk about white collar crime? I mean, how common Not is that yet. in the true crime genre? No, it's it's common. Like we are focusing on serial killers, but I think true crime, you know, um, it's kind of gone into like different podcasts where they analyze, say, cons, and they like you know talk about mm. different cons that have taken place, different you know white collar crimes, different frauds. You know, it's like there's so many different podcasts out there. 
um, okay. that explore those genres too. Just like, there is one I, I specific. Suppose my, I suppose my thing is that I, I always picture white collar crime as embezzlement, and I'm just like, who's interested in embezzlement? Okay. There <laughs> is one specific podcast where it where it focuses mainly on fetal abductions, and I'm just like, how many fetal abductions happen that fetal? there's a fetal. Yeah, that like there baby is baby fetus. Yeah, like baby fetus. Like, like was, how how many how how often does this happen that there is a podcast solely about fetal abduction? And, well, and the, I I know huh. that some of my friends listen to this um um like like this podcast that specifically talks about scams and cons and like you know things like that. And there's like this like almost a support for like this is a good scan. You got away with it. Good for you. As long as you're not hurting, like, people on, like... It's like, they're like, this is an IRL heist movie. Yeah. <laughs> Let's enjoy this. So, that's what I'm saying. It's like, in those situations, there's, like, this Robin Hood effect. There's like, I support this because, you know... So, that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, I'm not just talking about serial killers. I'm talking about, like, crime in general. And I wonder if... Sometimes people have this fascination with these particular topics of crime, like, um, or these particular, no, I don't want to say, I guess now I recognize I don't like the word crime, maybe as you said, discrepancies in society. Disruptions. Or, yes, disruptions. Um, and maybe that's what people like connect with or sympathize with. We are trained to sympathize with the killer, as I mentioned last time. Yeah. Re-listen, re all should re-listen to my podcast from last week, because I don't feel I feel like I meandered a lot, and I wasn't well presented, You're fine. and I just had a lot of information, and nobody knew, remembers. Okay, <laughs> anyway, but so moving on then. So what happens? We go from true crime magazines, which are very pulpy, and yes. Okay, I just want to come back to one last thing. All right. Okay. <laughs> this got me thinking, what fascinates us in the genre of true crime? Why are we doing this podcast? What propels us? What fascinates us about true crime or about... Because I kind of roped you guys into making this podcast, so that's why. <laughs> but I feel like we're both individuals where we, if we weren't intrigued or interested or at least supportive of the idea and, like, discussing it, we wouldn't have, like, gone full-fledged into it, you know? Yeah. So, like, I'm saying on a personal level, what brings you to these topics? Oh, I... I don't know. I, I think it is because a part of me, it is, I do, I guess I do kind of treat it like a horror film in a sense that I can't imagine things like this happening, but like these things actually do happen. So I think it's just like also, I guess, a sense of survival mode a little bit so kind of like a mix of both so it's like okay how if something like this were to happen to me how can I protect myself in a way you yeah. know interesting yeah I do like I think one of my biggest fears is like home invasion invasion yeah so it's like hearing about I I can't watch movies or like listen to podcasts actually which is the opposite of those like genres if mm. they ter terrify me and, like, serial killers are kind of in that realm, right? Yeah. So it's almost like I'm trying to destigmatize myself to no, that. Or, no. Um, or... Oh, I had the word, and then you said stigmatize, and that threw me for a loop. I know. Like, <laughs> de like, um, desensitize. Desensitize. That, there we go. Desensitize myself, but... Okay. 
Katrina, why are you interested in true crime? Because I roped her into it. I'm trying to actually <laughs> get to the, like, you know, like. Because um, I'm trying to figure, like, if we can answer this question within ourselves, like, why are you listeners listening to true crime, right? Like, why do we give, almost like giving power back to, you know, because you were talking about the crime itself or this horrific event that occurred. And I feel like you're going to answer my question because, like, I'm saying, why don't we move towards more, like, survivor or victim-centered, you know, stories versus, and you know, talking about... I'm very annoyed that you're doing this now, to be honest, because this was a discussion... This was, like, part of a discussion that I had three-quarters of the way through my notes, and this was supposed <laughs> to be happen much later! I was laying groundwork for this discussion! Okay. so you did too much of a good job laying groundwork that no, I Thank you. This is my, supposed to be my episode. <laughs> <laughs> you, it was supposed to be a discussion, and you opened it. You were educating us, and that's what, where my brain was going. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm just saying, I don't know. Okay. We know why Kendra does it. We'll, I guess we'll learn about like Katrina and Azreen later on. <laughs> All right. Back to the groundwork of the history of the true crime pot genre. So. <laughs> All right. All right. So, true crime magazines. This is the 1920s, 1930s. They're very pulpy. They're very sensationalist. They are interestingly. They're kind of like Sherlock Holmes in that they're very much focused on the. I love invest- Sherlock Holmes. Okay, yes. Cool. So do I. Very much focused on like the investigator character. Yeah. So like the person who's figuring it out, and that's where a lot of the drama the. It's of the story lied the, in that time. Like the person who's giving justice to the case or the event. Or yeah. like trying to seek. The detective. I mean, yeah. But like what what's the role of the detective? To bring justice. Okay, yeah. Or to find evidence leading to justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um um, you had the kind of the investigative character. When we moved into books, it was super funny because they're just like, there's this weird shift in the true crime genre when it moves to the books in the 1960s where, like, when we no longer have this investigator character. We no longer have the detective. It's now about the criminal. We're somehow centering them. And That's it, what I'm saying! Sh- <laughs> okay. Yes. And, like, we're centering them and we're making them more sympathetic. And, like, they're on, we're supposed to, be, like, see them as, like, on a spectrum for ourselves. People who listened to the last episode know that this was exactly, yeah. like, the history of true crime in America from the 1600s. That's what I'm saying. And I, with the execution sermons. Yeah. That's exactly what I found on my research. And I was so confused. I'm like, why are we sympathizing... And, like, that's why I was trying to figure out if people have that more curiosity. Yeah, re-listen to the last episode. Don't be mean. (laughs) But I'm just saying, like, I went into very detail about why we did that then. Like, I went into a lot of detail about that. But, um, in that particular context. But, uh um, when we get into podcasting, though, podcasting. And when podcasting, podcasting like starts-ish in like 2005, but nobody gets into it until 2014 when Serial comes out. I slightly disagree with this because I was a Night Vale fan and I feel like that was the first true podcast. But, yeah, but, of cor- but like in actual numbers, it was Serial. 
And so participatory culture was an idea coined by a guy named Jenkins. He has a first name, but I can't remember. I think it's Henry. But Jenkins defines participatory culture. And participatory culture is my jam because his primary field of study for this was fandom. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, this is his primary example of it. But he's like, eh, but it kind of happens to other places. So it includes, participatory culture includes, it's one of the following five. Relatively low barriers to artistic expression and civic engagement. Two, strong support for creating and sharing creations with others. Three, some type of informal membership whereby what is known by more experienced members is passed along to novices. Four, members believe that their contributions matter. Five, members who feel a degree of social connection with one another, at least the least they care what other people think about what they have created. And like, you can further distinguish these into like what participation looks like into like four general categories affiliations being mm -hmm. our first one memberships formal or informal in online communities centered around various forms of media such as friendster facebook myspace message boards metagaming and gaming clans two expressions producing new creative forms such as digital sampling skinning modding fan vids fan fiction zines and mashups three collaborative problem solving Working together in teams, formal and informal, to complete tasks and develop new knowledge, such as through Wikipedia, alternative gaming, and spoiling. And four, circulations, shaping the flow of media, such as through podcasting or blogging. Right now. So the whole thing with this is it basically puts, very interestingly, the podcasting in the somewhat has a possibility to go, go into the realm of having a legacy in fandom mm -hmm. which is really get started with my favorite murder it was the primary example of this so first we have cereal right cereal what did cereal do when it introduced when it brought stuff back a it's reintroducing the investigator character as the primary point of view into the story yes yeah yeah it is also Oh, continuing on with a very subjective line that you saw in the books of true crime in the 1960s, 80s, etc. Uh, but what is different? What has serial changed? Changed. We are now much more ambivalent about the status quo. Well, there's a lot more intimacy in how the story is presented. Like, it, like uh, Sarah Cohen, I probably mispronounced her name too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like, she presented herself with a lot less authority than you'd see traditionally. She invited people to be much more equal level. Like, she's still the journalist, but, like, comparatively, she's shrinking that barriers down a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and really, oh, there's there's kind of more collaborative. Like, you'd, they described it as kind of the rise of desktop detectives, of looking into the story and trying to participate in it, even. Mm -hmm. And finally... It, what they noted something she did was she spent a decent amount of time with the victims. Not as evidence, not pushing the narrative forward, but just time with them. Um, and to like dwell on what happened there. Mm -hmm. And what their stories were. So that was what changed with Serial. Now we move on to My Favorite Murder, which is a lot more in line with what we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's two friends sit, sitting down. Oh, like this is the other big one that like people are really big into analyzing. Mm -hmm. But my favorite is two friends who really enjoy true crime, self-described fans of true crime, sitting down discussing it. And like one tells one story and the other 
tells so the first friend tells a story then the second friend tells a true crime story they both murders there's and that's the podcast right mm-hmm. right and it's and it's how should we put it right. so this really digs us into participatory culture because it very much creates an interflow between the fans of the show and the creators of it it and it's almost like a fan production itself Mm -hmm. of like being fans of true crime and then there's a lot of this inflow where like they have mini-sodes where like the fans send in stories and so like the fans can also participate they have um there's two parts of the show where all the time fans are part of it it's the corrections corner where people send in corrections to what they said like hey you got this detail wrong or you know this or the other thing and then at the end of the show, they have the fucking hooray section. It was so funny to see that reference in this very <laughs> academic way. And they'd be like, and for the fucking hooray. <laughs> but it's like basically fans sending in like, here's what I've accomplished. Mm-hmm. And it's like, since we last spoke, like, like I started it, uh, going to therapy this week. Fucking hooray for me. <laughs> yeah. And so that's like a major part of the show. It's actually... Um, um, like, there's a whole art, there's a whole study done on how people with mental health issues were specifically interacting with this podcast and what help they found in it. And, and it was behind a paywall, so I couldn't get to it. Mm. But I did read the abstract. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, of course. How we have written all of our college essays. <laughs> is, yes, of course. That abstract comes in quite handy. God bless the abstract. <laughs> but, mm hmm. And so, yes, blurring blurring the boundaries between creator and consumer. And so, very interesting puts, yeah, as a part of true crime, but also fandom. And as someone who is part of fandom and is only just getting started in true crime, I'm, like, very excited to, like, talk about that as a convergence because they didn't talk about this. But what I think is very interesting is the source of authority, therefore, Mm -hmm. because... Obviously, as fans, like, like there's a much, there, like, there's no real hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's kind of a, there's a, there's no real hierarchy. Wait, what type of, where is this hierarchy taking place? I'm just trying to understand. Uh, more, not a hierarchy, but, like, you know, like, how the minister drew its authority from being the spiritual leader of the community, yeah. how the reporter drew authority from being the, um, the journalist type? From a, being a mirror, a, yeah. not a, a window. Yeah. Oh, and, like, the true crime book writers drew their authority from being insiders to it. it. As fans, as fellow fans of the genre, you don't really have a place of authority. But, like, the reason... But, kind of in studying fandom, one of the things that you kind of talked about is, in fandom, one of the major currencies is affect. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, how you... express emotions is a major source of currency within fandom. Um, How you express your love for something. And like, I was very interested in that kind of, the idea of that as being a source of authority Mm -hmm. for the podcast. Mm. And how that functions within true crime is now being able to emote about it. And so, uh, uh, let's see. I feel like there's some notes here that I want to go over. Mm. Nope. 
all the other notes there I think are good. So then, and there. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm just saying because the mic is right there. So. Yeah. Okay, so there's so, such since been like conversations about some of the things that become problematic mm -hmm. within true crime, right? Like, yeah. like using pain as entertainment. Yeah, and I still feel uncomfortable with that. Not just creators, but the listeners. There's like the whole like desktop detective thing. Like now that people are really engaged in it, like, sometimes crossing lines and like, like getting involved in the lives of people who like this happened to and being like you were the murderer that that kind of thing mm -hmm. and so there's kind of these problematic not problematic but uh yes problematic ethical dilemmas let's call it mm -hmm. yeah within the genre and how we deal with it and like there's this one question is increasingly as they put it increasingly more people are left with a wavering feeling of skepticism. What am I participating in? What is the cause and what is the cost? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is like where your whole discussion <laughs> was supposed to happen. <laughs> With just asking, what do you guys think? What are we participating in? What is the cause and what is the cost? Well, goddamn. Thoughts? The thing is, I think I might have jumped this discussion because I, in my research, yep. um, like oh, two weeks ago, I mm -hmm. have come across similar material like that, yeah. which has made me conflicted and, you know, re recognizing, like, you know, this sense of what is the cost and at what, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, at, like, you know, thinking, at what cost are we doing this? Mm-hmm. I think, I think, well, honestly, to kind of jump sideways a little bit, it, like, one of the questions, like, I had primarily was, like, how can this still function as a restorative ritual? Well, as Rebecca Frost says, because I think it still probably does. But how does it do so when it's introducing these questions of doubt into, the, like, when it's no longer affirming, like, our systems of justice are good? How does it... And we know that our systems, at least in the United States, is extremely flawed. Mm -hmm. Systems of ju justice is extremely mm -hmm. flawed. Yes. And so, I have a theory. Not quoting someone else on this. So this is just my own spinning wheels, take it for what it's worth, it's not much, but I think that in part of the way of like being, this being participatory culture with it being so, with the Barry's Venturi being so low, I think part of even just being able to like take the story in some way, shape, or form into your own hands is probably function, does a heck of a lot more, whereas before like, oh, I found out where that missing leg is. <laughs> Yeah. But, um, sorry folks, I'm sitting on a chair with three legs, and like, for the most part I've been fine, but yeah. But, um, I remember, like, talk, like, people talking about trauma, right? And, like, one of the most traumatizing experiences for people is honestly not even, like, terrible, horrible things happening. It's not being able to do anything about it. Yeah. Being paralyzed within the moment. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, like not being able to respond constructively. 
And like it's like losing control. Like, you mm -hmm. know, losing that free will and control. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so like one of the things with like podcasts being able to like with the desktop detective stuff, with being able podcasts being able to participate in them, to create them, to respond to them, to write in and have and have them respond back to you on air. Yeah. But you're able to do stuff. A lot of like some of the true crime podcasts that are coming out now, like you have like affirmative murder, which is Oh, by the way, by the way, step back. A lot of true crime up to, the, like, the past, up to, like, the turn of the 21st century, very white, both in victims and in perpetrators. We discussed this briefly, but, like, very white, not representative of, like, how crime is experienced in anywhere. But um, you have now have podcasts like Affirmative Murder, where two careers take turns telling true crime stories about minority killers or cases of color which is a podcast where they talk about missing persons of color and bring to light the injustices that were happening in their cases. You have multiple, like, indigenous-founded podcasts in, like, Canada where it's, like, these people went missing and how can we find them? Mm -hmm. and, and especially when the system isn't doing that. So it's... I think it's very interesting because it's moving from a, um, a place... A lot, in a lot of ways, it's moving from a place of, like, hearing and feeling safe within the status quo mm -hmm. to, like, hearing and then being able to respond in some actual way to the, to mm -hmm. the injustice and to the trauma that happened. And being able to participate, and, like, that participatoriness is where the restorative function is coming in. That's my personal theory. I think that would be, like, another reason why um, I thought about, like, making specifically a true crime podcast with you guys is because I'm just, like, I feel like in many ways it can be, like, pretty educational, but also, like, open up a lot of conversations and different discussions um, where we can all learn about different things like mm -hmm. stringing from a particular crime or person who committed the crime, you know? And I think a part of me just like wanted to be, um, wanted to participate and be a part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That honestly covers everything I had for tonight. So how are we all feeling? I'm feeling very good. Yeah. Azreen, mm -hmm. how are you feeling? Oh, I'm just having, like, thinking and processing, like, you know, the conversation that was started earlier in my head. <laughs> Carrying on a vivid eight-person discussion yes. with just yourself. Well done. <laughs> I do that all the time. You're not alone. <laughs> all right. Well, then. I mean, you never answered. Well, you kind of answered. Why, am I into true crime? Yeah. Hmm. You asked the question, at what cost? Let's answer that, and then... What's the cost? Well, I yeah. are... Uh, well, did I say the cost? Well, I said, like, part, part, yeah, participation, but I guess that's not really a cost, is it? I would say for the cost, I think there is a genuine risk of... Uh, I should preface this by saying that, like, my conception of justice is that it has to be personal. Mm -hmm. It has to be happening within the community that affects it. And by dragging it out into a public sphere, I don't think that can actually 
help justice in most cases mm-hmm. is is like I think we're starting to see people experiment with ways that it actually can help help like with the indigenous missing indigenous people podcast up in Canada yeah. like I think some of those are actually doing like genuinely good work with like crowdsourcing of like how can we problem solve some of this stuff yeah but yeah I think it does risk bringing it onto a stage and then distorting, creating a distortion of any actual kind of justice or healing. Mm -hmm. So I would say that would be the cost. And you're making continuing gestures, and I'm wondering how you want me to continue. Um, Are we at a standstill? I I don't know. I'm just thinking. Um, So, like, what... What is your interest in true crime? I think that's the question you have yet to answer. Okay, right, right, right. So, I suppose it gets a little hard because I haven't ever been into true crime. Yeah. And right, like, like, um, then let's ask the question, why haven't you been interested in true crime before? And are you now, or is this something you're doing with your friends? Um, let's see. I'm not disinterested in true crime. I'm like, I mean, this wasn't true crime. Paris, well, maybe, I suppose technically. Like, I really enjoyed the Heaven's Gate podcast. I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think that was like a case study of a cult. Yeah. And so, and I honestly was terrified of that. Like, that scared me worse than the horror podcast I showed you. Mm-hmm. Like, the Heaven's Gate podcast terrified me. I had nightmares of like, like, this is not what was happening, but I had nightmares of, like, like e- evangelicals coming, knocking on my door, and then breaking in and murdering me. <laughs> I mean, I had that fear when I was a Christian, so, <laughs> and still kind of had that fear. <laughs> no, but, like, this podcast, like, they had an intro that, like, very much viscerally played on that fear that I did not realize was latent within me, but it turns out absolutely was. Hmm. Was um, and you listened. Did was that a fear that you pre-existed you listening to the podcast, or something that it, like came out as you listened to the podcast, or after? I I mean, it must have been from before because it's not even like that was what was happening in the podcast. Like none of these folks were Christians. <laughs> huh. <laughs> and it's like it's just like there's like there's just like a doorbell in the podcast, and someone's like, whether you believe or not is up to you. <laughs> it was, I was just like you can still hear the secondhand panic in my voice. <laughs> but that's, that was something that you know I was trying to like discuss earlier was are we like you know you mentioned this Kendra earlier like we listen to it almost to confirm our fears and to prepare ourselves in those situations so we don't lose control like you had mm-hmm. mentioned you know like earlier. Mm-hmm. Um Katrina like so we aren't frozen and it's almost like protecting ourselves but you're right there is this cost of are we doing justice by the survivor or the victim you know Uh, by the individuals that were harmed by the community that was harmed by that tragedy or that crime or like that Mm -hmm. you know is our focus actually on creating something restorative yeah but and I you know, but at the same time, it's like we are also like p- 
people's lives were affected, right? What are we uh, supposed to do? Forget about it? Exactly, right? Like, like we continue the conversation so we can heal as a society, right? Or we can do something to change that status quo. Talk about, yeah. To, like, address intergenerational trauma or address, yeah. like, how society... Like, we can, you know, like, like brush away that toxic, mm-hmm. you know whatever you believe in, like, energy or, like, you know, like, Mm -hmm. in a religious way, like, you know, um, or in a spiritual way or in a scientific way, however you believe, like, to create positive change in the community and continue forward. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, so I am considering that balance, and I wonder if, like, as the podcast community, the true crime podcast community, Mm -hmm. have we found that balance? I think Katrina is vivid like shaking her head now. Um I think it's very that balance is very hit or miss. Like I don't think there there will ever be like a a true balance. Um No, it's a living tension. Yeah. And that you're all that like you're not supposed to resolve. Yeah. Well, you're always so it supposed goes towards ethics. Like you're continuously having that dilemma. Yeah. Which allows you to navigate that path more mm-hmm. so, you know. No, if you if you honestly, I feel like for most major ethical questions, if you ever get to a point where you're just like, I have the answer and I never need to examine this again, like you fucked up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's what I think of ethical questions. They're not to be answered. They're supposed well, to be like, you think ethical questions? It's not like they're not supposed to be answered, but like you have to be constantly interrogating those answers. Yeah. It's like... How do we, what, what was that scientific thing? It's like it's like a theory versus um, theory versus fact. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of know what you're saying. And I don't know what I'm saying, so I'm glad that you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's like theories. They're supposed to be questioned mm-hmm. and and like tested. Right? Like if we want to go towards a more like theological metaphor, God forbid. And how do I say that again? A stuckfula. A stuckfula. That would go a more theological metaphor for the ethical dilemma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, they talk about, like, I was told that, like, God's eternal mystery, which doesn't mean it can't be, like, understood, but that there's always something more to understand. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so is that where podcasts, like, true crime podcasts are filling in? It's like, like, yes, the case is already there. Yes, we have a story but we're continuously trying to, like, talk about the story, analyze the story, take personal, like, it, like how we're personally interacting with the stories and sharing it in this, like, fandom mm-hmm. community in order to see if we can understand more and then continuously juggling that balance mm-hmm. I think, of that ethical question. Yeah, and I think... I think, like, just by virtue of being something fairly new, I think we're definitely doing something worthwhile here, like, examining it. It's going to be examined through a new angle. Yeah. And I think that's going to be worthwhile, however we eventually come. Like, you know, if, if, like, the apocalypse happens in 20 years, it's like, this would have been a worthwhile Mm -hmm. venture. Yeah. I say it as we do the True Crime Podcast. That's like... Like, yes, we're not canceling next episode in a fit of ethics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it also, you know. We should leave the 
canceling in a fit of ethics open to us? No, I meant, like, it also leads to, like, what we were talking about where maybe, you know, how we're balancing that cost versus, like, that restorative justice or that healing that can take place mm-hmm. by, like, ed- like you know, continuing to tell the story that caused harm to the community and mm-hmm. continuing to think of ways that we can prove as a community um, or, like, you know, you know, analyze that, um, you know, and try to find more nuance in that story. Or, at the same time, by saying that, are we... Like, like, being entertained almost by a terrific, like, by a horrific incident that, or, like, a harm that may have been caused. I don't know if, I feel like entertainment gets thrown around as, like, a dirty word a lot, and I'm not certain I buy that. That, like, definitely on one, like, I definitely get the criticism of it, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like, there's also, like, this whole thing of, like, like, um, not literature, but, like, fiction. Yeah. Right? And, like, I remember there's, like, people who will, like... And, you know, you got people who, like, try to censor stuff a lot. And they're just, like... Like, you'd only, like, want to read the, like, person doing bad thing because you want to do bad thing. Right? And which was something that I encountered. And I think that's what I was trying to talk about when I was bringing it up earlier. Remember? And I was, like, unable to... Mm. Where it's, like, Mm. some people... That I saw that, like, trope a lot where... You know, you want to read this or be entertained by this bad thing because you want to do it. That's some. That's definitely something I encountered, like, in my, like, when I was, like, 15 and I was watching Death Note all the time. And I was called the spawn of Satan because I liked watching Death Note. as like, you are only Jeez. watching this because you want to, like like do bad things to other people. I'm just like, no, I'm watching this because it's a good show and it's like a show about basically a cat and mouse game. A detective is trying to catch a killer. Mm-hmm. So like excuse you, I am not the spawn of scene, thank you very much. No, yeah. But um you but no, like that's a very pervasive theory of literature though, right? Like you write and read about things, things rather than do them. Like, they're a, way, a safe way to, like, enact, like, maybe less than desirable desires, right? Right? To, like, explore less desirable paths. Yes. And it's, like, a safe space to do that because you're not actually going to hurt anyone as, like, you read a book. This reminds me of a conversation that Kendra and I were in. We were talking about lucid dreaming. I don't know if you... So, essentially... A friend of ours was talking about lucid dreaming, how, like, you know how some people can um, lucid dream, essentially. And there's studies now, or they're, like, learning ways where they're teaching people on how to be able to lucid dream. Um, Mm -hmm. So we were thinking, it's like, does that give more empowerment to people um, in, like, like a positive, negative, net neutral, or, like, whatever Uh way? So some of the things we were discussing was... Is this a way where if people, in, like, is able to take control of their dreams, control of their nightmares, or things like that, they can be empowered by their dream? I always or, found it fun. Um, or is people who want to do harm to the community or harm to a, like, an individual or, you know, lucid mm-hmm. dreams, those actions, causing those actions to, like... Okay, so they were saying, like, if you continuously, like, are in that state, 
it's gonna you're gonna be desensitized to it desensitized to it and then you're gonna want to do it in in real mm-hmm. life so is that causing more harm or is it mitigating harm so that was a conversation we briefly had about lucid dreams and that's but, like i'm connecting it yeah there's like like i i do want to throw out like this one example real quick of like people like like if we only present good thoughts and people do good things yeah. right and there's like they're like they're like the biggest example you have of why this doesn't work is like the Victorian period where you had, yeah, where you had like people being very heavily policed on like being able to of only being allowed to portray good, correct moral behavior in fiction, yeah. and then meanwhile they're going off and committing these awful atrocities around the in, world in colonization, and they're yeah. just like this doesn't work. Like you can't like like just doing good, nice, pure fiction does not create a nice, good, pure society. Patently so. Women do not show your ankles. Mm-hmm. But uh, more of the point was that, like, I was, that I was kind of going for it was that um, it's not, that, like, there's often this image of people engaging with fiction as a way to, um, that they're living through it. Mm-hmm. They live through the fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's this one, I remember reading this one article that I actually found very persuasive, which was that we are not doing it to, like, it, we are not exercising the parts of our brain that, um, like, we're doing the things. We are exercise like, we're doing it. We are exercising the part of our brains that would empathize with someone else who is doing it. Yeah. And, and, and it's, like, it's not, it's not mock, yeah. like, mock anger that we're practicing. It's mock empathizing with anger. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. mock, it's not play at, playing at grief. It's playing at empathizing with grief. And, like, the reason, like, we do this is because... We are social beings, and we need to connect with other people and empathize with them. Yeah. But, like, also, like, this, the threshold we would need to hit to, like, be satisfied with the amount we're doing. Like, think of, like, all the drama you read about and, like, how messy these people's lives are. Like, you yeah. cannot surround yourself with people like that. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, you can't, you, like, like, yeah. like, like you, it would just be, like, You'd be surrounded by people constantly consumed in their own drama. Yeah, and like, I can't do that. The wrecks of their lives. Like, you couldn't, like, it would be awful to actually surround yourself with that. But, like, that's why you have fiction. This reminds me of reality it's to, TV. It's to, like, it, yeah, exactly. It's like, I read a lot of celebrity gossip, so. But, yeah, and, like, it's practicing those empathy. It's, like, it's, like, it's doing empathy, but, like, in a safe way where, like, you're, like, not everyone you love's lives are on fire. So we managed to connect this true crime to podcasts, to lucid dreaming, to fiction. Wow, a lot of topics. Yeah. To but like, so like that's, gossip. Mm-hmm. But like, that's what em- that's that's what entertainment is, right? Yeah. It's like, like I don't know about you, but like I really like feeling fear in fiction. I like fearing anger. I love feeling grief. You know, I, happiness. I, I think I agree with you. Yeah. And like, but like, this is all a social exercise. Right? It's practicing empathizing with other people. It's it's not even practicing. It's kind of doing this play connection and care. And if that's what true crime is, like, the line between fictional person and person I don't know is very thin. And mm. because they're both extreme acts of imagination to understand them. And we are running out of time, though, so. We have wow. five minutes. Okay. Um, yes. I would agree with that. I, I guess what I was thinking of entertainment value as taking someone's tragedy and making light of it. 
Um, but I agree with you on like no, I think it's good for us to be social creatures. Well, we are social creatures, and we bond through that. It's a good thing that we are what we are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm glad we have Adrian's stamp of approval on that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but um, I mean, like, definitely make light of it, but also like, I don't feel like we could process it all the time if we were always taking a hundred percent the tragedy that it is. Yeah. Like I can't. Like I don't feel like we could even process our own experiences if we were always taking them a hundred percent of the time as the full tragedy they are. It, I think it's like the balance of what we, how we empathize and how we, mm-hmm. you know, struggle with that balance. Yes. There's clearly more ground to be covered here, but I think we're all tired mm-hmm. and we've done good. We've done good work for tonight. I feel like that's our new tagline. Hello, we are the Murders Trio and we're tired. <laughs> and we've done good tonight. Have a great night, folks. Get some water, get some rest. Don't harm people. Get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. That's really important. Don't harm people. Be community-centered. And we wish you peace, love, and solidarity. Sweet dreams. Murder's Trio out.